0: Uh, thanks, I'm Stuart. by the way, in case you don't know me, um, I'm going to be speaking to you tonight about uh, some things happening in the time of David and Solomon. So if you'd like to turn your Bibles to One Chronicles 21, we're going to start there and go through a few chapters. I don't know if you've been watching the World Cup, I have. <laughs> uh, getting pretty tired by now. Um, but if you've been watching the SBS coverage, you'll notice that Lucy Zellick keeps on calling uh, SBS the spiritual home of the, of the World Cup. I guess that means Les Murray's the Messiah or the prophet or maybe maybe Les is the ghost of the spiritual home, the presence of Les. But it's an interesting term, isn't it? I've heard the SCG and the MCG described in the same way, as so the spiritual home of, of uh, AFL or rugby league or something or cricket. Uh, We're going to talk about spiritual homes tonight, and uh, we'll see where it leads us. We're going to begin with the end, however, Uh, not the beginning. So I want to take you to uh, Jerusalem. It's uh, 40 years after the time of Jesus, and the Romans are attacking the city. Um, The Jews have been a thorn in the side of Rome for some time, and they finally decided to sack the place. And in fact, when they took the money, uh, I found out this morning from Luke, when they took the money from, after they'd sacked the place, they built the Colosseum with it. And Luke, who was in uh, Rome last week, said he saw a, a portion of, of artwork of the Jews walking, sorry, the Romans walking with a, a candelabra out of, out of Jerusalem, taking the, uh, the bits from the, uh, the temple treasury. But we start with the Romans attacking uh, Jerusalem, and uh, we see there that uh, the Romans wanted to get in and to... Uh, to take the, uh, the temple uh, sanctuary itself. Um, they had great siege machines, the ones you see in sort of medieval times, I guess they were the Roman version, and the Jews would fight against them and shoot arrows and then rush out with suicide squads and try to burn them. But eventually uh, Titus, the Roman commander, got the upper hand and uh, he got some battering rams, tried to batter down the walls. Uh, when that didn't work, uh, he tried to burn the place down And that did work. Uh, The doors to the temple area uh, took hold of the fire and uh, the temple began to burn itself and the Romans rushed in. Um, Apparently the limestone blocks on the top of the walls of the temple exploded, many of them falling to the ground and the others the Romans uh, pushed over later on. So if you go to Jerusalem today, that's what you see. Uh, those are the blocks that have fallen from the Temple Mount. The walls there that you see are from the Crusades. They're not the original walls, but the blocks down the bottom are. Um, Again, if you go to Jerusalem today, that's what you see. That's not a temple. Anyone tell me what that is? That's an Islamic mosque, yeah, on the Temple Mount. So why did the Jews fight so hard to maintain their spiritual home? Why, Why did they end up losing so many people. I think there was a number of thousand who lost their lives defending uh, the temple. Well, that's what we're going to see today. We're going to look at the beginnings now of the temple and we're going to go back in time to the time of David and to see what uh, God has to tell us about when the uh, building of the temple started. And it begins with David in chapter 21 and we're going to read verses 1 and 2. Let's have a look. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Bethsheba to Dan from the bottom to the top. Then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. And there's nothing wrong with taking a census. It's good to know how many people are in your uh, area, except if you're an Israelite. Because God was one who was always king and uh, The king under God was someone else. Uh, It wasn't their power that uh, gave the country its fame and its its might. It was God himself. And David is really taking a census of the fighting men. He actually wants to know how many troops he's got. And God's not very pleased at that. In fact, God's quite upset. And uh, although David has secured some victories and he's reached a stage where it's God's people living in the land of Israel under the rule of God, and it looks like all those blessings of Abraham have come true at last. This is just another indication of David, a man after God's own heart, making a pretty bumbling mistake. Uh, He gives into temptation, temptation of pride, to see how many people he rules over. Joab warns him not to go ahead with the scheme, But David does it anyway. He wants to take some of the glory for himself. Uh, If you have looked down at verse 7, we read these words. This command was also evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. David realises the foolishness of this activity and he's offered a choice by God uh, of three punishments and each of them you wouldn't choose. Uh, three years of famine, that's pretty bad. Uh, three days of an enemy attacking or three days of plague. And David thinks about this and he actually chooses the latter and he chooses it for a good reason. Uh, He says, I'm in deep distress, let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. So the other two, God's hand might be in that, but if it's three days of plague, that that plague is sent by God, and he knows that God has been merciful before in his life. Remember the affair with Bathsheba? There was punishment, there was judgment, but there was also mercy. And so David asks for mercy. 70,000 die in that plague in two days. That's a lot of people, isn't it? It raises that whole question for us of how can we, as a sinful people, ever stand in the presence of a holy God if He does this to His own people? Do we really understand what holiness is about? God is perfect in uh, purity; He's perfect in power and in might and strength. And sometimes we think we can stand up to God, or sometimes we think we're better than Him, or we're as pure as God, and we can actually say to God, "Well, I'm a good guy." I'm, I'm a nice lady, I don't do anything wrong. We can see uh, what God's judgment is like here when God judges uh, David for his sins. Again, it has this ripple effect on the whole community. And God uses his judgment uh, to destroy Jerusalem. God sends an angel down. And this angel comes down and uh, he uh, says that he's going to uh, destroy what he sees in front of him God looks down and says enough stop don't destroy the community don't destroy David at this very moment the angel is standing we're told between heaven and earth but he actually he's standing on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite his other name is Ornan you'll find that in the Bible as well and it's at the top of the hill And uh, David's palace is down there and this threshing floor is up the top there. And uh, when God says stop, the angel puts his sword away because God listens. David pleads for mercy and God listens to him. And he says to David, right here, you're to build an altar to offer sacrifice. Now the threshing floor is built on a hill because that's where you chucked up the, the grain and the wind on the hill would blow it away. And you'd be left with, uh, not the chaff, but the, the grain that you needed. And so on this hill, at the heart of Jerusalem, above David's palace, um, Arana thinks that this king is about to take his land. He knows that King David is very powerful. And so he says, well, look, you, you have it. Um, I, I've no need for it anymore. It's yours. In fact, you can have the, uh, you can have the oxen as well. It's, it's yours to take. But David won't have that. He wants to buy the land and the oxen at full price. He knows that sacrifice is always costly. Uh, It wouldn't be a gift, would it, if he got it for free? Unlike Cain, who bought a second-rate sacrifice to God, David won't do that. So on the hill above his palace, David builds an altar and offers burnt offerings to atone for sin And peace offerings to enjoy that relationship with God, to bring that relationship back with a community that's being destroyed. He understands that the death of even 70,000 people in three days couldn't atone for sin. Only the spilt blood of a sacrifice could do that. An approved substitute. So David calls out to the Lord, and the Lord answers from heaven with fire. Remind you of anything else? When else can you think of a sacrifice uh, on a hill and fire coming down? Remember Elijah? Yeah, Mount Carmel. Yeah, similar sort of thing, isn't it? The Lord speaks to the angel. The angel puts his sword away. The fire from heaven answered a question that David had been asking and burning in his heart for some time. Where was he to build the temple for the Lord? Because he wanted to do that for a long time. In fact, in one of the Psalms, Psalm 132, David writes this, Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I I will allow no sleep to my eyes. He must have been watching the World Cup. Or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. So David says, "I'm, I'm losing sleep over this, but now I've found the place. This temple is going to be built on this site where you have turned away wrath and shown us mercy. It's a threshing floor on the mountain. It's a place where mercy was sought. It's a place where justice was evident. It's a place where sin was confessed. It's a place where sacrifice was accepted. At the beginning of the next chapter, we read these words. Then David said, The house of the Lord is to be here and also the altar for burnt offerings to Israel. Now, what do we take away from an episode like this so far? This is just part of the story. Well, I think there's a couple of things we should note at this stage. Firstly, God is holy and can't be approached on our terms. If we think we're equal with God, we really need to have a good look at ourselves. This story again and again reminds us of how holy and utterly different God is from us. And as sinful people, we can't just come up to God and demand an audience with him. We can't try to do a deal with him. God is holy, and we are not. But secondly, in the place where God judges, we also find mercy. This is the way God chooses to dwell among his people. Here, God's judgment was turned away. And here is a place where God's temple is to be built. It's a fitting place, isn't it, for the temple of God. So David offers a sacrifice on the spot, It was to be the first of many sacrifices. Or was it the first sacrifice on this spot? Well, we're told later on that the name of the mountain on which this threshing floor was, was Mount Moriah. And someone had already walked up that mountain with his son to offer sacrifice. His name was Abraham. And when Abraham reached into his belt and pulled out his knife... And was about to raise it to kill Isaac, God again steps in and says, Stop, and provides another sacrifice so that Isaac might live, a substitute for Isaac. And so on that day with Abraham, on this day with David, and on these same hill with Jesus, on these same hills, this is the place where God would see the sacrifice and turn away from bringing wrath on his people. You remember David can't build this temple, can he? He's a man of war. 2 Samuel 7, he wanted to do it. We were told a few weeks ago, but Nathan the prophet said, no, no, God has spoken to me. You're not that man to do that. You're still fighting wars. You've got the country nearly settled, but not quite. It's got to be a son of yours who's a man of peace who will build the temple for you. Well, if David can't build the temple, he's going to do everything but. So we read in the next couple of chapters that uh, he makes plans. He provides the labour and the materials and he bankrolls the whole project. If you have a look at chapter 22, and we're going to read verses 2 to 4 of that chapter and then we're going to jump to verse 14. Uh, Let me read it to you. So David gave orders to assemble the aliens living in Israel and from among them he pointed stone cutters to prepare dress stone for building the house of God he provided a large amount of iron to make nails for the doors of the gateways for the fittings and more bronze than could be weighed, he also provided more cedar logs than could be counted for the Sidonians and Tyrians had brought large numbers of them to David and then over to verse 14 I have taken great Plains to provide for the temple of the Lord, a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, quantities of bronze and iron too great to be weighed, and wood and stone, and you may add to them. Uh, someone's added this up. It's about $5 billion. David must have had lots of raids into enemy, enemy territory, I guess, to get all this money. But $5 billion he puts aside. For the temple. And you can imagine David and the young Solomon pouring over the plans as they look at the detail. Again, in that chapter, look at verses 6 to 10, as David speaks to Solomon. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But this word of the Lord came to me: You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house in my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever." No wonder Solomon asks for wisdom later on rather than more wealth. He's got the wealth, but he certainly needs wisdom to build this. Um, David's reputation is on the line in some ways. If Solomon doesn't come through with this, then if, if, if Solomon fails, then David's reign may well be meaningless because this is what he really wants to do. So in verse 13, he charges Solomon, be strong and courageous. Put your personal trust in God, my God he calls him not just a God but my God it's a personal relationship that David has had for all these years and he wants Solomon to have that same relationship with his God and for the next few chapters in Chronicles all we get is a detail and it's worth reading the detail of the finest things that go into building this incredible temple he knows that the temple however is pointing towards something else That's Solomon. Solomon knows that you can't contain God in the temple. So if we go to uh, 2 Chronicles and we move over to chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles there, 2 Chronicles chapter 2, and we look at verse 5, uh, Solomon speaking says there, um, The temple I am going to build will be great because our God is greater than all other gods. But who is able to build the temple for him? since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him. Who then am I to build a temple for him, except as a place to burn sacrifices before him? Even Solomon knows that even though you know, this is the focus point of the presence of God, you can't contain God's presence in a place like this. That's why Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. And Jews think he's talking about the temple the Herod's temple, the third temple that had been built on this site. Of course, Jesus is talking about his own body. Because Jesus has taken that temple imagery and said, if you want to see God's presence on earth, look at me. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us that not only is Jesus a temple, he's the priest who offers the sacrifice and he's the sacrifice itself. And in Solomon's day, the Jews were instructed, that if you're going to pray, look towards the temple and pray. But instead of praying to a place where you might be heard in heaven, in Jesus, heaven has come to earth. And now we have perfect access to the Father through Him. And later in Ephesians, if you want to jump to chapter uh, 2, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2 and verse 19. Having a good look through the Bible tonight. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19 to 22, we're going to read. We see Paul picking up this story and uh, running with it and telling us a little bit more about what this is going to be like. I'm still in Galatians. I hope you're in Ephesians. Ephesians 2 verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, he's talking to the Gentiles here, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. See that temple imagery, it's gone from a place to a person and now it's moving out to people. We're told that we are the temple of God. Citizens from every nation are the temple if we're filled by the spirit of Christ. This is how a holy God can dwell with an unholy people because Christ's spirit is with us and Jesus has died for us and Jesus is pleading for us. The Jews in AD 70 fought for their lives defending the temple from the attack of the Roman army. For them, the very presence of God was in that place. What they didn't realise was that God had already left the building. Well how do you experience the presence of God by believing in the name of Jesus and letting his spirit dwell in you and change you to become more and more like the son himself When Solomon finally builds a temple the holy place where God's presence and glory dwelt was a 9 by 9 meter box It looked something like that 9 meters by 9 meters in the book of Habakkuk, towards the end of the Old Testament era. The writer there says this, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It used to be an old hymn we sang. And through the coming of Jesus and the lives as Christians, this temple vision is now being fulfilled. No longer do we look to this hill on Jerusalem, we're now looking outwards to the whole earth. And we're seeing that as Christians move from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth, so they take with them the glory of God. Has it culminated yet? No, we're still waiting for that time. And in the book of Revelation, we find that that time is about to come, when Jesus returns. So finally, if you want to turn to the book of Revelation, this is the end of our trip. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22. Uh, Here... uh, John has a vision of a new Jerusalem coming down from the heavens. I think I might have a picture of it here. Oh, there it is, yep. Well, it's an artist's impression. I didn't actually take the picture. Uh, I'm not there yet. Um, Revelation 21, John has this vision. He sees the perfect cube again. It's not nine metres by nine metres this time. We're told it's a cube 2,200 kilometres square. In fact it's as large as the known world in John's day. The point's very clear, isn't it? There'll be no special place in heaven where God's presence will be. You won't have God over there in a box. Uh, We don't line up to go and see God. If you want to meet with him, the whole place is his temple and we are there in his presence. There'll be no distance between us and God anymore and we'll know him fully and perfectly. What a wonderful picture. And it all begins with a foolish old man wanting to take a census to see how powerful he is. Well, let me leave you with a couple of things that we can take from this tonight. I think the first one's always applicable to us God can bring our foolish, sinful desires to bring glory to himself. We do some dumb things. I do some dumb things. I do dumb things every day, and I have foolish desires. And yet, God can still use me to bring about his purposes and to bring glory to himself. David is not alone here. You and I can join him in that fact. Secondly, salvation always comes at a cost. It's not cheap grace, is it? Uh, the tabernacle system of sacrifice continued with the permanent temple and again culminated with the death of Jesus. Sin costs, it costs us our lives, the wages of sin is death. But thank God he provides that perfect substitute for us. And finally, good news for us who aren't Jews. The fame of God's name extends now to the Gentiles. Did you notice in Chronicles when David makes plans to build the temple, he brings in foreigners to do all the building. But they were excluded. If you went to the temple in the time of uh, Herod the Great, if you were a Gentile believer, you had to stand in the outer court You couldn't go into the inner courts. But now we're told Gentiles, through the death of Christ, have been brought in. The boundaries are opened up through God's love. And again we read from Ephesians, you are no longer strangers to God, foreigners in heaven. You are members of God's very own family. That's great news, isn't it? To know that we too can stand in God's presence along with those Jewish Christians. Thank God that he's invited us into his family, so that we can look forward to a time of hope of being in his presence forever. I think it's a great encouragement when we think about death to know that uh, being in God's presence is a sure thing for those who put their trust in Jesus. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us in providing a way out all the time when we do dumb things. You keep on throwing grace in our lap. We thank you so much for this. And we pray that we might live up to the person you want us to be. Help us to become more holy each day uh, through the things that we do so that we might stand one day in your presence because you're a God who loves to see holiness in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, question. I question. oh, nearly questions without You'll Snuck away. <laughs> nearly snuck away again. We're up there. Any questions? I got one. to turn to two Samuel chapter twenty four. I'm not going to answer this. I'm just going to throw it out to you. Two Samuel. Tw- oh, I don't know. I don't know. Not sure I know the answer. I think it's to Samuel. Yeah, let's have a look. Here's a story in uh, Samuel's version of that same event of the census being taken. You remember in 1 Chronicles, it said, in 1 Chronicles, uh, that uh, Satan incited David to take the census. Have a read of chapter 24, verse 1. What's it say there? Who, who'd like to read that? So who, who incited David to take the census? Was it God or Satan? I'll leave that with you. Anyone got an answer? Yeah. Because that's what he's done with Job, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. And often you'll get, you know, these are written by by people who don't have all the answers, but uh, that's the way they see it. And uh, we can see there's a spiritual dimension that we just don't know what's happening. But uh, whatever happened, David made a big boo-boo. <laughs> now, I've asked my question. Anyone else got any? I can see a hand going up. Peter, you got a hand going up? Oh, over okay. there. Um, so thinking about... David and Solomon preparing to build the temple, which is where God would dwell, and I believe that that was um, designed with, you know, a holy place and a holy of holies sort of thing. Yeah. We, we are now the new living temple. Yeah. Um, his church and people and body. Um, and talks about the spirit being within us. Yeah. How can God's spirit be within us if God is holy and we are not, we're sinful? Does that make sense? So, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, we're not not holy, but I I guess it it keeps on going back to the fact that um, Jesus stands as a substitute for us. And we're told in, uh, I think it's Romans, I might be wrong. In the New Testament, we're told that Jesus is pleading our cause continually before God. And I guess it's because of what Jesus has done and is doing now, we can stand in his presence as being holy. So God's spirit is within us. We know we're not perfect, but we're striving to become what we already are in Jesus. So we should be moving in that direction of holiness. Awesome. Kath? Yeah: Hmm. We are washed clean through Jesus. Sorry? We are washed clean through Jesus? Yes, we certainly are. Now, my question was who started IKEA in Jerusalem? I didn't quite hear who. Who started IKEA in Jerusalem? I don't know the answer to that one. (laughs) David. He was not allowed to build the temple, but he he did it in kit form. So, in my eyes, he built the temple. But this is how, how young kids can remember things. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that night with my class. <laughs>